looking forward to seeing how God is using and placing Grace Church to hopefully make a significant impact for the kingdom, and we trust this is a step in that direction. So with that said, we have a book to wrap up this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Habakkuk chapter 3? If you are somebody who has put me on the timer for how long I'm going, you reset that timer. That didn't count, all right? We are starting afresh right now. Habakkuk 3 is on page 786 in your pew Bible if you do not have one. So we will um, continue uh, conclude, excuse me, our series in the book by looking at really just the final three verses. Um, in many ways, it feels like, as uh, John kind of alluded to in his prayers, that we've been walking through this book for far longer than six weeks because I think it's safe to say now at the end that Habakkuk is pound for pound one of, if not the heaviest books in the Bible. It is challenging and engaging, it is profound and it's complex, it is loaded with just difficult questions and no easy answers. Which I think in part is why I've heard over and over again in this last six weeks from people who said, I've never heard a sermon preached on Habakkuk, let alone the entire book. And because it is a book that just requires deep reflection, it's this kind of persistence to just ask God to give us the eyes to not just read, but to see. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, when it comes to the Word of God, it's possible to read it and not see it. It's possible to read it and not see it, especially a book like this. It's, it's possible just to read it. It would take you 15 minutes to read it. But it is taking us far longer than six weeks, probably a lifetime, to just see the beauty, the agonizing beauty that comes alongside these kind of deep, oftentimes difficult truths. And, and, and I won't walk you through the entire series. They're all provided online or through the church app. But um, this has just spotlighted one man's journey from expectation to confusion to doubt to this now firm kind of gritty faith in the character and nature of a good, just God who never fails, who always makes good on his promises, even when this man, Habakkuk, can't even fully understand him. And it's a journey along with the rest of the Old Testament that leads us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, like, we, you, we know, right, like, when Jesus is mentioned about an Old Testament text, like, that's not just an add-on on the end. Right? It's not unrelated because our understanding of the scripture is that any Old Testament scripture is not complete until you follow it along and find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so over the past five weeks, we have sought to just understand this, to apply this, to ask questions together. And we did it really through the lenses of individual believers, um, which is the reason why I saved the last three verses for today. Uh, could have just added them on to last week, but I wanted to separate this out because I want to finish this book through a different lens. I want to show how these themes in this book of Habakkuk can relate to and be applied as a church, as a corporate body living on mission together. And so if you're part of Grace Church, how can we apply this uh, as a church moving forward? If you are from out of town and visiting, why should you really be interested in finding a church where you live and digging into it? Hopefully that will be jumping off the page at us today. So what does this book do to equip the church? 
in 2017. Let's go. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're just reading the final three verses, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So if there is any passage that you might have recognized out of Habakkuk even before this series, it's typically these final verses. And they are unbelievably weighty when you actually consider what Habakkuk just did. Like, this hits on a level of maturity that I'm still trying to find and dig into the bottom of. A level of faith that is almost unrecognizable for us, especially in our postmodern metropolitan context where success is everything, where surface-level optimism and wins kind of rule the day. It is so easy for us to just not notice the depth of this conclusion. Think about this. That book just ended. The book ends by Habakkuk saying, the fig tree is going to be bare. No fruit to speak of. The fields will yield no harvest. The flock will be cut off to the point where there's nothing in the stalls. It's not just like things are bad, but Habakkuk is coming to terms with the fact that both the short-term and the long-term horizons look bleak. Not only is there no food this year, no produce, no fruit. If you know anything about farming, you'll probably correct me after the sermon, but here's what I know, and it's limited, all right? Since there is no blossom or no food in the fields, this also means there's no seeds implanted for next year's produce either. And since the flock is getting cut off, not only will there be no meat this year, but when they're not together, when they are scattered, there's not a whole lot of reproduction going on. So not only do we have nothing this year, but there's going to be nothing next year either. This is not Habakkuk saying, um, listen, today looks bleak, but tomorrow's looking better. Right? Because we love that kind of concept. Like, it, it's always going to get better. It's, what Habakkuk is saying is, today looks bleak. Tomorrow looks worse. And there's no light that is visible yet at the end of this tunnel. There's no quick fix. There's no silver bullet. And what is amazing is that in the reality of that darkness, Habakkuk still says, Yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. It's a level of maturity that goes far beyond nominal belief far beyond buying into the kind of American consumerism Christian lie that uh, this is your best life now. This is spirit-empowered, unshakable faith in things unseen, in the living God. And so again, we've covered this a lot over uh, just how to glean and respond to this as believers, but, but what about the church? 
Okay, so we are in a cultural moment that is by far, without question, the most difficult environment a church in the West has ever had to operate in. The, the rise of secularism that has become a dominant worldview has grown to the point where the, for the first time in Western history, listen to me, it is now more difficult to sustain faith than it is unbelief. And more and more, the life that is just centered on self is becoming what is accepted and the loving norm, as opposed to a life that is centered on God, specifically the God of the Bible. And so with that comes an increasingly growing attack on the church and its traditional beliefs, on the Bible itself being this kind of target of ridicule and critique along with anyone who lays claim to it. That is why younger generations are shifting away from kind of stated hardline belief to this so-called nun category. Not N-U-N, all right? N-O-N-E. That I just don't want any affiliation. And so I am spiritual, but I'm not religious, and I'm not laying claim to any one God, I'm not claiming to any kind of one um, uh, orthodox belief, but, and the reason is not conviction on their end of what the Bible says, and they're not like wrestling through it, it is simply looking at where the culture and the tidal wave that's going against the church, and going, man, I don't want to be a part of that, I I don't want to be on the receiving end of that, so I'm good, I'm nothing, You, you can't critique nothing. And and that is just kind of the growing now ethic that we're in. And so here's what's important. I'm not lamenting this shift. Because, yes, there is an abundance of issues that are on the horizon for the church. An abundance of issues that you look down the pipe five years, ten years, twenty years. Man, I don't know where this is going as a result of this growing secular culture. But at the same time, right alongside that, what an opportunity to be the church the largest opportunity the church has maybe ever had in the West to actually be a distinct community that we see in the Bible. To actually be salt and light that makes a difference, that is distinct from the culture around it. And so with that said, four applications for the church, four applications for for Grace Church out of Habakkuk that speak to how we can be faithful in our cultural moment. First, Our joy is centered on Christ, not circumstance. So we just read, right, Habakkuk, he still has some questions. We covered this last week as well. Like Habakkuk still is not sure how this is going to play out. He's not sure what Judah's future looks like. The fact that the Chaldeans are coming and God is sending them himself to discipline and restore Judah. And so his knees are shaking. But... He's heard from God. He's seen God on the throne, and because of that and that alone, Habakkuk says, my joy is rooted in a place that cannot be taken from me. And so as I think about this through the lens of a church, we must always be asking the question, is our joy rooted in God? Is it based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, or is it based upon how successful Grace Church is? Like, if our joy is truly based on Christ alone, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear from a world that's becoming increasingly hostile to the things of God and certain beliefs that the church holds. And not only do we have nothing to fear, but we don't need to turn this into a drag-out battle. 
Like it doesn't need to be line in the sand, us versus them, knock out, drag out, let's go. It's actually a joy in Christ that equips us to love and serve a hostile world that we're trying to reach. Like it is one thing to sustain an onslaught from culture against the church. It's a whole nother level to turn and love this culture in order to show them the love of Christ. And a church that is willing to live out its calling, to commit to worship of a loving, sovereign God, regardless of circumstances, regardless of that phone call that maybe came this last week, regardless of that phone call that might come this upcoming week, that we know as a church, our joy is untouchable. So, and I've talked about this before, but just want to nail down again, like, the, the Bible shows difference between happiness and joy. Like, happiness can be stripped for us in a second, Joy is not fake happiness when your world is falling apart. Okay, so for the past week, there is not one person in the little town of Sutherland Springs, Texas, that has been happy. A town where 4% of the entire population was wiped out in a matter of moments because of a crazy man who wreaked havoc on a church. Happiness was gone for them. Happiness has been gone for millions of others across the country upon hearing it. Unimaginable pain. Like, are you serious? Loss. Deep, um, soul-level questions about why and how. But hear me. You know why this morning, as we speak that there is a crowd gathering on the grounds of First Baptist Church of Sutherland Springs to worship? Do you want to know why the pastor who just lost his 14-year-old daughter to senseless murder said that he is going to stand before his church, open the word of God, and proclaim it to his people? Because while evil stripped he and his wife's happiness, nothing can take away their joy in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, times there's joy and there's happiness, and a lot of times they look similar, but it's only joy that can still exist when your knees are on the ground, your face is against the floor, and there's tears streaming down your face. So, practical application for Grace Church We want to be marked by a commitment to ensure that it's Christ who is high and lifted up and not Grace Church. Like, do you know what I mean by that? Like, we're not here to make much of us. We're not here to boast in our performance or in our circumstance or all things are going well. We are here to make much of him based on who he is, based on what he has done in Jesus Christ. And so growth is not this means of promoting our people or our systems or our ministry, but growth is both deep and wide as a means of glorifying God to promote his kingdom. And so listen, as a church, we're going to have good seasons and we're going to have bad seasons. We are going to make good ministry decisions and we're going to make regrettable ones. And we're going to succeed, and we're going to fail. And so yes and amen, let us plant and let us water. Let's be passionate about making good decisions to make disciples and do all that we can. But let's be sure, at the end of the day, 
our joyful worship is rooted in Christ. Because if that's true, man, we are untouchable. What God can do through an untouchable church. Second, our joy is shaped as a community, not as individuals. Our joy is shaped as a community, not as individuals. Um, Throughout this book, even up into this final concluding passage, Habakkuk faces an impossible task. Like, think about what, what God is asking of him. Think about what God is asking of you through this book to trust in the midst of darkness, to have faith when your knees are shaking beneath you, to stay on a path God has placed you on while a broken, fallen world implodes all around us. Like, if we were just kind of apply that today, let, let me state the obvious for all of us it's tough to be a Christian. Not just culturally, spiritually. It's difficult to maintain a growing, maturing walk with Christ throughout our lives when countless factors are working against us, external and internal. When we have an enemy who is like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. This is why Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, before he goes to the cross, pleads with God. He says, God, Father, unify my disciples. This is why Paul urges the church to carry one another's burdens. This is why the author of Hebrews exhorts the church to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, encouraging, giving courage, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God will be faithful to deliver us to the end, and he uses various means of grace to do so, including and especially one another. Again, encouragement, such a common word that we kind of see it as a soft word. Like, yeah, we're here to, 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 to encourage one another. And that kind of can seem like it's, it's not meaningful or it's kind of soft. But just think about that. To encourage, to infuse courage, to give it to one another, to receive it from one another, from a community of faith in which you're a part of. And so I say this on repeat, and I'll say it again. The more church becomes just this kind of place you go to, as opposed to a people you're a part of, the less of a chance you're going to have at persevering to the end. Because a place can't give you courage. People give you courage. And our salvation is personal, but it is not private. And when Habakkuk says, God, I will faithfully wait for your promises. I will faithfully wait for you to carry out your purposes. He's not saying I'm going to do it alone. He can't. He will wait as part of God's chosen people. And God will use those people to be the means of holding him up when he's tempted to fall, to be the means of drawing him back when he's tempted to drift. So about 20 years or so after Habakkuk writes this prophecy down, the nation of Babylon would indeed come and raid his people. It wasn't an empty promise or an empty threat. God did what he said he would do. And Babylon came, and they ransacked the temple in Jerusalem. They carried out violent action against Judah. They carried the skilled labor out of Judah and brought them back to their own capital uh, for slave labor. It was where, as a nation, 
they needed to cling to Habakkuk's words that though all else would fail and there's no fruit on the trees, though things would be bleak, that their unshakable faith is all they had to sustain their joy. Three of those men who would be carried out with the nation of Judah and taken into captivity to Babylon were named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard about them since you were three years old if you grew up in the church. And in the book of Daniel, we see their story. And these three men, they refused to bow down and worship the king of Babylon once they got to their capital. And they did so out of devotion to the Lord. How could they worship something else? It's not even on there. It's not even an option for them. So, uh, because now they are captive in another um, city, uh, they are brought before a blazing furnace, and they're given one last chance to repent. And they say, you guys are going in here. You guys are done if you don't bow down and worship the king. And their response ever since I really sought to grasp it, has been haunting me. It's a response I've shared before. I, it's one that I will share again. It's done more to minister to me and show me a level of maturity that I'm still hoping to find the bottom of and see in my own life. Let me paraphrase what they said. They said, King, we believe God can save us. We believe God will save us. And even if he doesn't, he is still God and we're not bound down to you. Even if it costs us our lives. I believe he can, I believe he will, and even if he doesn't, he's still God. And I wonder, in light of reading Habakkuk and knowing its context, if these three men had this very book in mind, if these three men had this very concluding passage in mind when they clung to their faith in the midst of the trial and the unknown. And further, I wonder what would have happened if, if it was only Shadrach who was about to get thrown in by himself. I wonder if it was only going to be Abednego. I wonder if they still would have held out in their faith. I wonder if the fact that it was three of them standing together, shoulder to shoulder, brother on my left, brother on my right, that that was the reason they had the courage to stand on the rock of faith as they awaited their fate. Andy Steen wrote about community on the Grace blog this past week. He highlighted how we in the church today spend uh, much of our time waiting. How much of our life we're just waiting. We wait for adult children to come back to the Lord. We wait for a positive pregnancy test. We wait for our kids to sleep through the night. Please, Jesus. (laughs) We wait for a spouse We wait for a job. We wait for victory over anxiety. We wait for God to answer our prayers. And what he wrote was that in that waiting, it is far better to do it together. There is strength in numbers. There is courage when you are shoulder to shoulder, brother on my left, sister on my right, and we are going for this together. And we're going to make it through it all. Because above all, Andy wrote, in the church today, we're waiting together for Christ to return. And we're sure of it. 
and we know who is coming back, and we know what he will do, and it's not just, uh, we just don't know the what or the when or the where, but we know the who, so you better lock it in. We know how this ends, and it ends in victory for the church. Let's keep going. Third, our joy is spurred on by service, not idleness. This is important. Our joy is spurred on by service, not idleness. I want to read the final verse of the book again, verse 19. He said, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread in my high places. That is such a good word for the church, that God is our strength. And if you were in a place where you could watch a believer grow in maturity, you know what growing in maturity looks like? It looks like this growing shift from relying on ourselves and our own strength to then relying on God and having our confidence in his strength. Habakkuk doesn't merely say, God gave me my strength. He said, he is my strength. And this is what spurs on joy. Not that we climb out of the valley ourselves and God says, come on, it's not that big of a deal. Get back up here. But he sets our feet on high places. He takes us from wallowing in our own fears and anxieties and he gets us going again to wait well doesn't mean to sit back idle. But waiting on the Lord means being faithful in what we do know and trusting that he will reveal what we don't know in due time. This is what Habakkuk did. In the midst of misery and questions and waiting for God to answer, God is using him to serve God's people by providing a written prophecy of God's words, of both his warnings and his promises. He is active in his waiting, not idle. No one illustrated this better with their life than a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you recognize the name, but if you do not, Elizabeth Elliot's husband, Jim, was a missionary who was killed in 1956 while attempting to make contact with an unreached people group in South America. And at one point later in her life, Elizabeth was asked, how did you handle that? Like, how did you come up out of that? What was it that sustained you? How did you just deal with just the day-by-day onslaught of distress and pain that came from that? Her answer was simple. Elizabeth Elliot said, trust in God and do the next thing. Trust in God and do the next thing. Don't wallow. Don't slow down. Each day, you got to wake up. And when you wake up, you got to swing the legs. And when you swing the legs, you got to get out of bed and you got to keep doing the next thing as you trust in God. Keep looking outside of yourself. Keep serving. Keep loving because there's always a next thing. And small, daily, mundane, mostly overlooked tasks don't get a lot of glory. They don't get a lot of attention, but they prove to be the means in which God takes you out of the valley and moves you to the mountaintop through the normal activity of life. Trust God and do the next thing. Elizabeth would suffer the loss of her husband, and then she would stay in South America for several more years just doing the next thing. To the point where then she had the opportunity to go with her sons, whose daddy was killed, 
into the same village that her husband sought to reach, they would be the ones to share the gospel with them and see this village come to Christ and baptize the very man who killed her husband. How do you get from that mind-numbing loss to that kind of mountaintop victory? By trusting God and doing the next thing. And just such a word for the church today that is climbing this uphill battle in our culture that's trying to be relevant, that's trying to be effective in the midst of a culture that by and large doesn't want to hear it. And we're raising kids in a culture to love Jesus in a world that says you don't need Jesus. Like how do we do that? How do we face that? As a church, we trust God and we do the next thing. The majority of the Christian life, the majority of a church's role is daily, mundane, mostly overlooked tasks over a long period of time and trusting that God's going to do mighty things through it. Where even the week in, week out service here at Grace Church can feel so small compared to the world's problems, so insignificant. Like another day working in the nursery, another day just greeting people in the door, another day preaching a sermon that no one will remember, another day locking the doors and walking security. It feels so mundane. It feels so small compared to the big needs and problems of our world. But we trust God, and we know when a community gathers and commits all together to do the next thing, to be faithful in the small things, to keep going, keep trusting week after week, we trust that God will work in and through the mundane and do extraordinary things for his kingdom through ordinary people. And it's in this way that it becomes unchallenged that he alone gets the glory. And none of us doing the tasks because he is our strength. He leads us to high places. Fourth, and finally, our joy is manifested in courageous mission, not fearful cowardice. This really serves to be the final application, the the final culmination of reading and understanding Habakkuk well. That a church that is rooted in joyful worship, a church that is unified in doing this together, a church that is committed to doing the next thing will overflow into living out the calling of our mission to make disciples for the glory of God. The mission of the church bookends everything we do. Grace Church was founded by a group of people with a desire to make disciples in northern New Jersey. And so it makes sense that everything we do ought to play a part to that end. We see this in Jesus' ministry as well. He comes upon his disciples. The first thing he says to his disciples in Matthew is, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Then after three years of ministry, of doing life together, of teaching and emulating and equipping, the last thing he says to them is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The mission bookmarked his earthly ministry. I'm going to develop fishers of men. I'm going to develop disciple makers, and then I'm going to send them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, if you're really following the real Jesus, if Grace Church was truly Christ-centered, not just in its vision, but in the way it operates, then Christ's mission ought to be the ultimate aim of our hearts. And it amazes me both as a church attender for my whole life and now as a church worker for the past two plus years, how easily the mission of a church can get crowded out by other things. 
how the task to make disciples can so easily take a back seat to other aspects of the church to internal conflict or how the task to make disciples can be watered down by a fear of a culture that, that says, hey, you guys do whatever you want inside those four walls. Just don't bring it out here. And praise God, I think Grace Church has placed us in a, in a time where we are unified, where we are running well together, where now he has commissioned us to go reach a lost world, to be salt and light. And so this word that we open up every single week, it's not just to be studied and known for our sake of knowledge, it's to be studied and known so that it equips us to go out and live well. And so the reason we emphasize the gathering of the church on Sundays is not so we can count our stats. It's not the the, the reason so that we we can just make much of us. It's that we need to meet in order to be effective. That the reason Sunday corporate worship matters is because we're waking up and going to Monday public life tomorrow. And the harvest is plentiful. And the laborers are few. And God wants us to use the church as the primary means of equipping us to go live on mission. So in closing, over the past six weeks, there has been much to think about out of the book of Habakkuk. There has been much to lay down on top of our lives from a book and a few pages in a Bible that often gets overlooked. So above all, let us recognize that this dialogue between a desperate man And a God who hears and responds is that it's not in the Bible to spotlight Habakkuk. It's not in the Bible to spotlight us. It's in the Bible to spotlight a God who is constantly at work. And he's at work in the world. And he was then. And he is now. And he is redeeming and he is restoring a fallen creation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this book, along with the 65 others, is meant to equip the church to play a part in that for his glory. Oh, that we would be rooted in the joy of the Lord. That together we would have the courage to live out our calling well as we wait for his return. That God will use us to claim as many as possible for the kingdom. This is our cultural moment. This is our chance to say, regardless of what happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray.